Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. All right, let's grab our Bibles and open up. Matthew chapter 2. Charlie, you did a great job, girl. We're proud of you. That was awesome. That little sweet voice singing out loud, wasn't it? Good. All right, Matthew chapter 2. So we're going to do kind of like a, just a Bible study, and we're going to walk through verse by verse and looking at this passage, and then we're going to see what we can glean today from these wise men. These wise men. So this is what it says in chapter 2, verse 1. Are you there? Are you awake this morning? Amen? Listen, I, I know you're probably like me. You're still full from last night's supper, so don't fall asleep on me, okay? Here's what it says. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, here's what we see. All right, we're just going to walk through it little by little. It says, after... Jesus was born in Bethlehem after. Now, a lot of times we imagine this story, um, it's almost like we imagine it like this, that uh, the shepherds had a six o'clock appointment with baby Jesus in the stable, right? And then the wise men came following right behind there waiting at the door for the shepherds to leave because they had the 730 appointment with Jesus before the baby went to sleep, right? And so this, it's almost like we imagine that this happened on one day, but that's probably not the case. Probably not the case at all. In fact, what we see is this could be well after uh, Jesus had, was born and had even aged, and some commentators will say up to two years after Jesus was born. So he was no longer an infant, maybe, but rather a child, a toddler. He was, Jesus was in the terrible twos. Can you imagine that? I know you can't. He, uh, we learned that this is after Jesus was born. In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came. Now, how many of them were there? All right, perfect. Good answer. You guys have been to church before. Now, we sing a song. We three kings of Orient are. Right? But we're not exactly told how many of them there are. Right? So we don't know if there are three or if there are 39, or maybe there are only two. But we know that there are wise men. Uh, there are a number of them. We always say three because there are three gifts mentioned. But there are these wise men. Now, the word for wise men doesn't mean smart people. It is magi. Magi. Now, if you've done much Bible study of the book of Daniel, you've read the book of Daniel. And Daniel was in a group of people who were considered this Magi group. And inside that Magi group, in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint actually uses the word Magi three times in the book of Daniel to describe enchanters, astrologers, and magicians. 
Now, that's probably not how you ever viewed the three wise men. We three kings of Orient are. Probably never how you viewed that. But this is who we learn that they are. Now, likely they are scientists. They, they're studying the scientists, but they're a little different than the scientists that we think about today. Because in our world, what do we do? We try to take science and divorce it from faith. See, science is a thing of fact, right, is what they would say. But faith is a thing of fancy. Faith is something that is our stories told, and who knows if they can be proven or not. But what we see in this passage is that these three wise men, these magi, were studying the stars, but not divorcing the stars from what God might be saying in the midst of it. Do you see that? They are studying the stars. They're looking at what God had created, looking for the truth of the one who created them. And that is not what we see in science in our day and time. Now, I could get off on a lot of tangents about how science proves a lot of things that the Bible speaks of. But, I won't, I'll, I'll move on. But these three are wise men. Now, it seems as though they might be studying astrology. Why? Because they're looking at the stars. Now, that's what they're doing. They're wise men. These magi from the east. Now, where in the east? Now, when we say Orient, where do you think of? What countries? China. Somewhere in Asia, like what we know of as Asia. And that might or might not be the case. Now, in Daniel's day, these magi were in Babylon. They were in Babylon. Now, Babylon is about an 800-mile trek from Jerusalem. So these might have been Babylonians, or it could have even been further to the east, all the way even into what we now know as Asia today. But, but we're not exactly sure where they came from. Now, here's the thing. Um, we don't need to focus on what we can't be certain of. So today we're going to focus on what we are sure, sure of. Okay? So wise men came from the east. And it says, they came to Jerusalem saying, verse 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now here is what we know about them for certain. They were looking to the things that God had set in the sky. They had seen this star, and they had begun studying uh, the scriptures or, or, or the writings of God. They were studying them, looking for the answers to what this star might mean. And it reminds me of the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 19, that says something along these lines, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his divine, uh, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. Now, here's what we know. We know that creation speaks to a creator. And that's exactly what we see in this passage is these people are looking to creation for the one who created all things. They're looking at what God made and said, if this is not evidence of a creator, I don't know what is. Now, what does that creator want to say to me? Jeremiah 29, verse 13 says it like this. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. With all your heart. 
And this is exactly what we see in the passage. We don't know exactly how many of them there are or where they came from exactly. But what we know is they're looking to creation and they're seeking the God of creation with all of their heart. And God finds it a pleasure to reveal himself to those who seek him. Now, let me just stop for a second. Many of us might say, well, Ryan, God's never revealed himself to me. And I just want to show you through the scriptures that God is not playing a divine game or cosmic game of hide and seek where he's hiding from you. But rather, God delights in showing himself to people who would seek him. So I just want to put this back on you. God's not revealed himself to me. Have you sought him with all your heart? Have you made him the highest desire of your mind and your heart and your soul? Are you seeking God with all that you are? I promise you, if you will, I'll make a deal with you. If you will seek God, he will reveal himself to you. Why? Because he promises to. And there's nothing that he wants more than to let those that he created come into contact with Almighty God. They were devoted. They were devoted in their search. How do I know that they were devoted? Now, let's just say they were from Babylon, 800 miles. Can you imagine these wise guys trying to explain their decision to go on an 800-mile journey to Jerusalem to their wives? Can you imagine that conversation? Honey, we're going on a trip. Is it a business trip? Sorta. Where are you going? Jerusalem. Why? So, the other night, you know the meeting that I go to on Tuesdays, right? There, the other night, there was a, there was a star that we saw in the sky. And so at the meeting, we started talking about star in the sky and what it might mean. And we began to study those books that we've been reading and studying and looking at. Honey, I told you, don't read those books. I mean, can you imagine? So we'll be back. Now, I, I'm not, I don't know how long a camel trip, I guess they came by camel because that's what it shows, you know, in, in every artist depiction of this story. I don't know how long a camel trip took to travel 800 miles, but I'm sure it wasn't overnight. It was not a nonstop flight to Jerusalem. I mean, this is a long journey. Maybe, maybe if you travel 10 miles a day, that's going to take you 80 days. And if, you, if you're humping it, you get that? Sorry. I could not resist. I didn't even plan that one. That was just God right there. He's good. Uh, if you're getting it, you might, you might do 20 miles a day. And if you do 20 miles a day, that's 40 nights, 40 days, 40 nights of traveling. That's a long way to travel. These guys were devoted. They were devoted to their search. And this is what they, they come to Jerusalem based on probably an assumption. An assumption. They say, hey, the star revealed to us as we searched for the God who put the star in the sky, it was revealed to us that there's a king, the king of the Jews born, and we assume that he would be born in Jerusalem, Israel's capital, the city of God. 
Mount Zion, where all the kings reign from Israel. So they came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. We have come to worship him. Now this is a beautiful thought. This is a beautiful thought. That these non-Jew, God-fearing people, God has led on a 800 plus mile journey to a child king to worship him. Let me tell you, God is not obligated to a specific people. God's desire is to see every tribe and nation and language come and bow down before our king. And it's a beautiful passage. It's a beautiful thought. The Christmas story that God would reveal himself through a peasant girl named Mary. The first person to recognize the Savior is an unborn child in a mother's womb. After he's born, shepherds, the outcasts of Israel, come to meet him. They are the first ones who are the recipients of this divine baby announcement. And then they take him to the temple eight days later. And there in the temple, the prophetess Anna is the first one to greet him. And then the next story is that there are three wise men, Gentiles, who come and worship the king. Can I just tell you that God works in unexpected ways? Because if, if a Jewish person were writing this about the Jewish Messiah who had come to save the Jews, he would not have written it this way. But God does things in a way that he alone gets the glory for. We've come to worship him. And, and so we learn from Jesus' birth that he's worthy of worship. He doesn't want your church attendance. He wants your worship. We worship what is of highest affection in our hearts. He wants that place in your life. We've come to worship Him. Now, Herod says, I don't like that. I'm the king here in Israel. So, verse 3 when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Verse 4, And assembling the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Verse 5, They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet. This is straight out of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, I just love the promise in Micah chapter 5 that out of a no-name town in Israel, but it's David's town. Out of David's town in Israel, there's going to come a ruler, a king. But he just won't be king, but he's going to be like David himself. It's going to be a better David. See, David was a king who was raised as a shepherd. Jesus would be a, a king who is also the good shepherd. He would be the last king. He will be the king of kings. 
and he will be the shepherd of all. It's a beautiful passage, a beautiful truth. But here's what I want you to see. There's a comparison being made between these wise men, these magi, and the religious scribes and Pharisees and chief priests. See, they came to Jerusalem to inquire about the king. Herod sends for the chief priests and the scribes and says, where is the king, the Messiah, supposed to be born? And so they go and they research and they do all of these things and it seems like they come up with a pretty quick answer. Bethlehem's the answer. That's where he's going to be. And it's straight out of Micah chapter 5. Bethlehem. Now, here's what it says in John chapter 1 verse 11. It says, Jesus came to his own but his own did not receive him. That is the perfect representation of this passage. He was born in Bethlehem, but his own did not receive him. They knew the scriptures, yet they had not sought Jesus one moment. They knew the scriptures, but they did not accept the authority of the scriptures. Woe to us who know God's word, yet do not submit to its authority in our lives. I've heard it said, you probably heard it said, that the greatest distance known to man is the 18 inches between the head and the heart. And that's exactly what we see in this passage. See, the Magi, they traveled 800 plus miles. If Babylon is where they're from, they traveled 800 plus miles to come and see the newborn king. Yet, from Jerusalem to Bethlehem is 5.6 miles. J.C. Riles says it like this. How often the very people who live nearest to the means of grace are those who neglect them most. Familiarity with the sacred things has a tendency to make men despise them. He continues, there was a knowledge of scripture in their head, but no evidence of grace in their heart. Now, do you remember of all of the places where Jesus was rejected by an entire city, where was he rejected? Nazareth, his hometown, the town that Jesus grew up in. See, familiarity with Jesus and his family and his lineage brought contempt for him. Now, I'm not trying to, to be harsh to each one of us, but there is a warning in there for you and for me who were raised in the church and are familiar with the scriptures that we might be familiar with them, but never let the familiar, familiarity in our hearts and in our minds breed contempt for the Son of God. May, may the familiarity with the Scriptures never cause us to deny God's grace in our lives. Never cause us to think that we are okay and we don't need His grace, but rather may the familiarity of the Scriptures push us into the grace of God even further. See, just, just remember, the purpose of the church, the, the church is... Is, is not that we might come here and learn more. Now, learning is good, amen? We all need to be growing up in knowledge of God, but that's not the only purpose. Now, I have a confession. Last night, I ate an incredible dinner. I had two plates of it. Can I get a witness? Miles is with me. It was good. But here's the problem. I might, I'm not sure where the line of 
being enjoying the meal turns to gluttony, but I was on it. I might or might not have stepped into gluttony last night. Because not only after my two plates of dinner came a plate of dessert. Glory. But, do you know sometimes the American church is guilty of being gluttonous in learning while being anemic in obedience? We, we, I would be better off if I knew less and obeyed more. Do you know you can go to different congregations and you can sense their level of, of education and learning. You can, go, you can walk into a church and go, wow, they know their stuff. But guess what? When we get to heaven... God's not going to look at you and me and go, you knew lots of stuff about me. Kudos. As I read the last book of the Bible, it in fact says, blessed are the ones who read aloud the words of this book and who keep them. There's a difference between the head and the heart that I think the writer here is getting at. He's comparing for us the magi who were obedient to something that wasn't very clear in comparison to the people who knew very specifically what God had written yet had not sought Him at all. Verse 10. Actually, let's, let's keep reading. Verse 7. Then, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them, what time had the star appeared? Tell me when you saw that star. Oh, it was, a, it was that, that time. All right. Took a mental note. Verse 8, he sent them. Herod sent them. It's almost like he thought they needed his blessing. We don't need blessing of people to do what God commands. Verse 8 says, And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king. That just struck me. After listening. They listened to the king. But it doesn't, it doesn't say that they agreed with him. It doesn't say that they said, Yes, king, we'll do that. It doesn't see, say that they submitted to his authority. It just says they listened to him and then they left. To do what God had called them to do. And later on we find that they were, before they were listening to the king, they were listening to the king of glory who said, don't go back to Herod. The king, the king of glory had their ear. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Child, child. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Verse 11, and going into the house. All right, we're no longer in the manger, in the stable. We're in a house. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. Number one, I want you to see the word worship. It's the only proper response to us coming in contact with Jesus, who is King of Kings. It's the only proper response. 
worship. Anything less is not worthy of King Jesus. They came and they worshipped Him. Now, I don't know what, how you were raised, but there's in, 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 in the Catholic faith, they don't just worship Him, they worship her. But what we see in this passage is very clear. They didn't bow down and worship them. They bowed down and worshiped Him. King of the Jews. King of the Jews. Now, we learn in Luke that in Mary's Magnificat, her song of praise, it says, My soul magnifies the Lord. And she begins to praise her God and Savior that she just birthed. We don't need an intercessor between God and or us and Jesus. That is why Catholics will pray to Mary, because Jesus has to do what his mama says. That's a scary thought. Now Jesus has to do what the Father says. In this passage, in this passage, they fell down and they worshiped him. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. They fell down and they worshipped him. I love this. Just picture this. I don't know how far that they traveled. I don't know how long the journey was. I don't know how many days and nights they traveled. But they came in and it says this beautiful passage. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. Opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. What are the gifts? Gold, Frankenstein, and myrrh stuff. Amen. Okay, sorry, that was a bad joke. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, these, these gifts are significant, but the fact of them giving the gifts is far more significant. The, the fact that they came in with their hands full of treasures and laid them down before the king of kings is significant to you and to me because we think often that life is about treasure. How much of this can I have? How big can this account be? How big can my house be? How many of these can I own? And what we learn is that when we come in contact with Jesus, all of those things no longer matter because the one before us is greater than the things that I have stored up for me. We learn. We learn that treasures of this world don't matter. Jesus even says no one can serve God and mammon. We can't have two masters. Have one king. We think that we own stuff, but really what, what can happen very quickly if Jesus is not our Lord and Savior is that we think we own stuff, but stuff owns us. Amen? But he says... It says they, they came and they, they brought their treasures and they laid them before him. They opened their treasures to him and gave them gifts, gave him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now the gold is the gift of a king. It's a king, kingly gift. Do you remember when the queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon? She brought him lots and lots of gold because it was the only gift fit for a king. Interestingly, you think about the next passage, which says that an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and says, rise and take your family to Egypt. How in the world would a peasant carpenter afford the uh, Egyptian airlines ticket for a family of three? 
Even in these gifts, we see God providing for the safety of his Messiah. And we see God providing and sending the Messiah to Egypt so that Hosea could be fulfilled. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, Out of Egypt I called my son. So this gold was given as a gift to the king. It's pointing to Jesus' kingly state. Frankincense, the second gift. In the Old Testament, it was mixed with oil and used to anoint priests. Not only was it used to anoint priests, but priests would use it in their worship of God. They would mix this incense, frankincense, and and offer it as an offering of thanksgiving and praise to God. It was always offered with the food offering and never with the sin offering. Think about that. Frankincense is always a gift of praise and adoration and thanksgiving, and it was never given in line with the sin offering. And I think that points to the sinless nature of Jesus. It also reminds us that Jesus is the high priest. It's these wise magi. These magi came from afar and anointed him king and priest. And then myrrh. Myrrh was used for two things. Number one is easing suffering and pain. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross in John chapter 19? They filled a sponge with sour wine. One version says that they filled a sponge with sour wine mixed with gall. It's to ease the pain of suffering. And it was also used for embalming a body. Now, if that's not an odd gift to bring to a baby, I don't know what is. Hey, mom, we brought you a gift. Now, do you remember, you remember our um, Child Development Center uh, video just a few weeks ago on Wednesday night? They did a video and they retold the story. Um, it, was this SCA or, or was it SCA? Okay, SCA, our, the school here at our church. They did a video retelling and asking questions to children. And one girl said, if you were going to bring gifts to baby Jesus, what would you bring? And she said, diapers and a casserole. That would have been helpful. Right? Myrrh? A fragrance of death? To a baby? It's pointing forward. See, even in the gifts that they're bringing, they're telling us who this one is. This king. He would be a king. He would be a priest. And not only would he be a priest, but he'd be a sacrifice. See, as king, he rules over all. He reigns forever. Do you know that Jesus is forever on the throne? Jesus was not born into existence. Jesus has always existed. He always was. He always was the sinless savior of the world. He always was the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the pre-existent king of glory. He is sovereign. Nothing has ever escaped Jesus' divine authority. Have you ever felt like you fell through God's cracks? Let me promise you something. You have never fallen through God's cracks. 
there's never been a, a detail, a, an iota of your life's detail that has fallen through the fingers of the King of Kings, Jesus. There's nothing in your life that is accidental or coincidental. Those things don't even exist in the economy of God. Isn't that good news? He is king. He is worthy of our worship and our praise. He is priest. And as priest, he makes intercession on your behalf to God. He alone, God alone, mediates the covenant between holy God and sinful man. 1 Timothy 2.5, I quoted it a minute ago, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He intercedes for you. He intercedes for you. As priest, he also offers a sacrifice for sins. The once and for all sinless substitute, the sacrificial lamb for sinful man. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 26 says it like this. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. If that's not a humbling passage, I don't know what is. That the, the means by which God would would pay your sin debt is by sacrificing himself. Hebrews 10, 12 says, When Christ offered, had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. What does he sit there at the right hand of God and do? He intercedes for you as priest. He intercedes for you day by day in the throne room of God. Do you know that Satan is the accuser of the brothers? You know what Satan does day after day? Accuses. It's how my world works. Ryan, I sin. Surprise. I sin. When I do, Satan slides in. He slithers into my brain. Ryan, if your church only knew what you thought, how could God even love you? Why would God let you go to heaven? Why would he forgive you? You know the truth about Satan's accusations? Is they're not completely untrue. Why would God forgive me? Why would he let me into heaven? Why would he love me? But the mediator intercedes for me. And he intercedes for me not because of what I've done. He intercedes for me based on what he has done. My sin deserves exactly what I get coming to me. But Jesus' sufficient sacrifice earns for me what I could never earn for myself. So when Satan comes in to accuse, Jesus stands at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for me, saying, I know what he did, Father, but remember how he trusted me. Remember what I did. 
Remember my cross. Remember my blood shed. Remember my body broken. That was for him. He intercedes day after day. Romans chapter 8 verse 34 says, Who is to condemn? Praise God. Who is to condemn? Romans 8.1 says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Romans 8.34 says, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. It's good news. I don't enter the courtroom of God with my own arguments. I enter the courtroom of God with a defendant. No, and a defending attorney. He is pleading my case to the Father based on what He has accomplished for me. That's good news. So here's application. I don't know where you are today. And you might find yourself in, in the religious know, like the scribes and chief priests. Or you might find yourself more like the Gentile magi. Or you might even feel like you're not even one of those guys because you're not seeking the Lord yet. I don't know where you're coming from, but followers of Jesus come from lots of different places. And it doesn't matter where you start from today or where the road of life has taken you. What matters today is that you begin a journey of seeking God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. And I promise that if you seek him, he'll reveal himself to you. And I promise that the more you seek him, the more you'll find of him. The, the deeper you dive into the depths of his love for you, the greater distance that you will see his love spans for you. You will never plunge the depths of God's riches and mercy and grace for you. So dive deeply, seek him, pursue him with all your heart and it doesn't matter if it's six miles or 800 miles. Seek him and begin the journey of obedience today. See, wise men still seek Jesus today. So have you sought King Jesus? I don't mean did you walk down an aisle and pray a prayer, get baptized. Please, brothers and sisters, that does not make you saved. That makes you wet. But when you seek Jesus, when you, James says it this way, when you receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Maybe you've sought Jesus and maybe you've found him and maybe you're a follower of Christ. Don't stop seeking Jesus just because you got him. Because you can never get to the bottom of him. Have you opened your treasures to him to give him gifts? That seems like a weird thing to say. Like, what kind of gifts would Jesus want from me? Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. I'm not going to get into this, but in, from Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 11, it presents the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore, because of all of the mercies of God that we have just talked about in those first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, because of all that God has done, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. 
What does he want from you? He wants you surrendered. Alistair Begg says it this way. He asks this question. He says, speaking of the Magi, he says, we know that they arrived with treasures, with the treasures of earth in their hands, but did they leave with the treasure of heaven in their hearts? Today, that's a question for you and for me. We can give him all the gifts of the world, all the treasures of earth we can lay down before his feet, but if you don't leave with the treasure of heaven in your heart, you, you're coming and going in the same state. The third application for you and for me is be the star. I might be reaching a little bit on this one, but be the star. All right? There was a star that God ordained and set in place sovereignly in his divine plan. He put that star in the sky. Isaiah says uh, that he holds them in place he who brings out the starry hosts one by one, calls them each by name because of his great power, mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. He placed that star there. It was in the sky to lead those wise men, those magi to Jesus. You be the star for somebody else. Because people are hungering for Jesus and craving for Jesus. They don't know that they are yet. They're hungering for him. They need him. They're searching for truth. They're looking around and saying, what is the purpose of life? Be the star that points people to Jesus. You can't save them, but you can lead them to the one who can. Be the star. Shine brightly in this world. Live an unblemished life to the best of your ability, and when you don't repent of it, live the gospel and proclaim the gospel to everyone that you come in contact. Beg God for opportunities in these days to preach God's good news. See, God sovereignly placed that star. Now, where has God sovereignly placed us? You don't live in Seneca or Oconee County by accident. God's placed you here. The question is, what does he want to do with you? We have a great opportunity to do this in, in 2022. In January, I want to go back to this, in January, we're going to be going after some of the lost sheep of the house of Seneca Baptist Church. We're going to go after them. And some of them need to be led back by uh, God's grace to uh, active membership in Seneca Baptist Church. And others of them, they need the gospel. Just because they're on the roll doesn't mean their names are written in the book of life. So they need the gospel, and so we have an opportunity in January to go and share. So that's a great opportunity that we're providing, but look around you in these days as you live life for an opportunity. So we're going to end a little differently today. I'm going to ask Miss Margaret to just come play. We're not going to sing. What are we going to do? We're going to pray, and we're going to meet with the Lord. And maybe you're on a journey where you need to start seeking him, and you can do that today. You just say, Ryan, I'm lost. I, I want to know Jesus. I want to start that journey. I'd love to pray with you. Um, maybe you just need to come and you need to bow your knee at the altar here and say, I, I, I surrender myself to you again as king. I've been, I've been taking my sacrificial life off of the 
altar and picking it up and walking away and living my own life as king of my own life. Maybe you just need to come and bow your knee to him and recommit your life to Jesus. You want to start a year on a good foot, forget resolutions and talk about recommitting our lives to Jesus. That's what our world needs. That's what our church needs. That's what Jesus wants. So, Miss Margaret, would you begin playing? Would you stand with me? And I'm just going to ask you to move. If you want to move, if you want to come and kneel and bow, there's no pressure. I'm not going to coax you. You come and do what the Lord's leading you to do. But let's respond to the message in the Lord today.